So if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 21. By way of of reminder, just to give you a little refresher from last uh, Sunday, we opened up, uh, kind of of moving into chapter 21, uh, this parable of the sword. And if if you don't remember, we we moved from a parable involving fire to really the very same parable involving a sword, but with greater clarity. And so we will begin this morning at verse 8 of chapter 21. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord. Say, a sword, a sword is sharpened, and also polished. Sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So the sword is given to be polished that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against the princes of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord God? As for you, son of man, prophesy. Clap your hands. Let the sword come down twice, yes, three times. The sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt and many may stumble. Oh, excuse me, and may stumble, and many stumble. And, all their, and at all their gates I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed. I also will clap my hands and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. What you've just heard is the inerrant and perfect and inspired, inerrant and perfect and inspired word of God before which we tremble before which we may have many questions but once more again together we say this is the word of the lord thanks be to god and so we're moving we excuse me we have moved from a parable that was a bit vague about fire in the earlier uh, part of the text uh, last week to this parable about a sword from a if you like from a parable to a clearer parable maybe a picture is the better word an object lesson We learned about the sword in last week's message, this image of judgment. And so um, I also directed you at that time back to the book of Deuteronomy, where we find there, um, it's not going to be on the screen for you, I don't have that uh, today, but Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 41. Deuronomy 32, uh, well, let's begin in verse 40. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, this is the Lord speaking, If I sharpen my flashing sword, flashing sword, you remember from hearing the text just a moment ago, the the sword was said to be flashing, glittering, uh, very obvious, easy to see. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, same language we saw in our text about the sword, uh, the Lord saying He's going to take hold of the sword, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Again, what Israel would have understood, or at least what I hope they would have understood, is that God was saying that my people have now decided to become my adversaries. My people have now decided to become my enemies. The sword has been turned such that the blade faces God's people. 
Now in verse 9, we have uh, what's been called a song about this sword. A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. Sharpened for slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. And what happens there, from there, is that we move from this parable to a song or, or maybe even a poem. Verses 9 and 10 contain a bit of poetic verse. And the rest of this section, to verse 17, continues with similar poetic language, but not so much poetic structure. If you've got your Bible open, if you're looking at the text, you'll notice that verses uh, 9 and 10 very much are are ordered like a psalm with the uh, poetic lines in, in verse. But then after that, it goes back to the simple paragraph structure. But a lot of the language and the words used stay the similar. What, what is really remarkable is that this section is one of the most notoriously difficult passages to translate out of Hebrew in all of the Old Testament. It is really, really difficult. In fact, just a verse 13 alone, listen to what two commentators said, uh, New Testament, uh, excuse me, Old Testament scholar Horace Hummel says of verse 13, this difficult Hebrew verse is virtually unintelligible in terms of the sentence structure. Daniel Block on the same verse says, indeed, it looks like a, um, it looks like a ground of words randomly thrown together, right? So, now those, by the way, Those are two Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing scholars. So they're not saying that it doesn't belong there or that God made a mistake. What we're seeing, I would be willing to bet, is the writing of a prophet who is in utter grief and is having trouble, to use our parlance, putting pen to paper to explain the, the, the tragedy and the misery of all that's happening. And so, if you'll, if you'll look there in verse 13, what is, what is, how does the ESV handle this most difficult of verses? For it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord God? I mean, I, I read that like 30 times in my office at first go of this, and I really had trouble making sense of it. So if you have trouble making sense of it, congratulations. My best shot at a paraphrase is, this is not a test. Because at this point, what good would that do? Since you despise the rod, discipline and rule. Okay? You've despised the rule of God. You've despised the discipline of God. You have no ears to hear that He is uh, carrying out judgment for your sin. And so, this is not, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a test. Because what good would that do? So what can we say about this portion of Ezekiel's prophecy? Well, if you will look at verse 12, he's given a command. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. That is the sword. And, so not just the people, it is also, verse 12, against all the princes of Israel. So, your status as a member of the covenant community cannot protect you. Simple status of belonging to Israel. Your status as a... um, a, a member of the, of the ruling class, let's say the royal class, the upper class in Israel, cannot save you. This is for all the people. This is for the rulers. No one is exempt here. And God calls him to grieve. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. We saw this last week as well, didn't we? That Ezekiel was commanded to illustrate 
and to, it's, it's, so, it's more than illustrate, it's, it's really just put on display what everyone in fact should be feeling and doing. For visible grief to be attached to this prophecy. And really, if you think about it, this is always God's way of working. That is, visible signs are attached to promises. It's what we just saw in baptism. It's what we're going to see in a few moments in the Lord's Supper, that this is God's way of working. He attaches visible realities to His promises to one aspect of it. There are other aspects, but one aspect is to bring it home to our hearts, which are often, they just tend to get hard and we have trouble hearing and we have trouble being refreshed. By these things. But also, I want you to notice something else. God, your God, is unafraid to take the time to say something important. And so we started in verse 8 and 9, right? Son of man, tell them this a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. And then we go into this question or shall we rejoice? In other words, um, uh, the, uh, that's, sorry, that one's not obvious either. That is, oh, sword language. So, so like our rescue warrior is coming to save us. No. No, the sword language is judgment language. You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. That is, think back to the tree reference and the woods reference earlier in uh, chapter 20. You've despised the people. You've despised my rule. So the sword is given to be polished. Now, what I want to point out to you is, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but lots of Ezekiel sermons over the last few months have made more or less the same point. Or at least, let's say, three, maybe four really important points that we keep coming back to with different language. The Lord keeps saying kind of the same things in various different ways. And so the Lord, through Ezekiel, will say something and then it gets clarified or it gets nuanced. And then the broad and general statements come back. And then those get clarified or nuanced. And then they get further illustrated with a parable or a song or a poem and so on. And what strikes me about that is it really grates against what I think is our modern tendency to just kind of truncate and summarize everything, right? To cliff notes everything, to shorthand everything. And if it can't fit into a social media post, then it's really not worth saying or more likely, it's not worth hearing. It's not worth my time, right? If you, if you can't fit it in to like three or four sentences, then it must not be worth saying. And I think it would be really important that, that we, I mean, I, w- I was going to say as Christians, but really I, I, I believe it's even, even bigger than that. Just as humans, there are important things worth saying that sometimes take more than three or four sentences. And what's remarkable about Ezekiel is that God is declaring judgment, which by the way, kind of has a sense of urgency attached to it. Urgency of judgment and the Almighty is absolutely unhurried. I mean, honestly, again, from my modern perspective, if I were Ezekiel and if I were calling the shots here as to how this would be communicated to Israel, I would say three-point sermon and let's be done with it. 
Okay? Point one, you are all cheating, lying, spiritual adulterers and idolaters. Point two, judgment is coming. Point three, believe me or don't believe me, but God doesn't lie. Right? We're out in time for lunch. Now, all of that content, that, those three points that I just threw at you, all of that is in Ezekiel again and again and again and again expressed in different ways. But God is absolutely unhurried in how He chooses to express it and repeat it and declare it and repeat it and illustrate it and repeat it. What can we learn there? I think at least one thing we can learn that we already know, but it's, let's, it's just good to hear it. Communication, let's say sanctified, godly communication with hard hearts is hard work. And yet, God Almighty seems to think it is worth the time and the breath and the ink. So sometimes, faithfulness looks like simple fidelity to the reality of what God has said. Okay? Simple fidelity to the reality of what God has said. Even if it feels like you're repeating yourself. And so we move then from a poem to a pronouncement, if you'll join me at verse 14. As for you, son of man, prophesy. Clap your hands and let the sword come down twice, yes, three times. For, uh, the sword for those to be slain. It is a sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them, a reference to, well, the, the coming Babylonian surrounding the city of, uh, of Jerusalem. But he says, clap your hands. Now that's very interesting because clap your hands ordinarily is a sign of joy. In God's Word, people are often called to clap their hands. Even the trees start clapping their hands at one point in Isaiah for joy at what God is doing. Where are we finding joy in this? And obviously it's not obvious. Obviously. Uh, But what what it is, is, is God is saying... Tell them that judgment is coming and then think about it in terms of judgment is coming, God has said it, He's going to do it, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving it my amen. So that, that clap your hands for joy is often a yes, we, we amen, we rejoice at what God is doing. And so in one moment Ezekiel is saying judgment is coming and the next moment he is saying so let it be done. So, so let me be satisfied with what God has said. From there, what does he say? The sword for those to be slain. Oh, the, the two, twice, and yes, three times. Again, a notoriously difficult bit to translate. Uh, I'm with those who say what's going on here is God is giving this image of a, a twirling twice, three times sword. And maybe you can imagine that. A, um, a a warrior with a sword spinning it in his hand again and again and again. And so it looks very intimidating and, and frightening. That's the idea. So that their hearts, verse 15, may melt and many stumble. So sin always brings judgment. That's been one of the fundamental points of Ezekiel throughout the book. Sin, ongoing sin, always brings the judgment of God. We all believe this and we all want it. Okay? To some extent, even if you don't, even if you're not a Christian, 
You want it to be true that wherever there's evil and wickedness, it gets met with righteous judgment that, is, um, that, that, that balances out with the crime. We all believe it, and we all want it to be true. We just don't want to be the guilty ones. What is revealed here and in several other places is that God is absolutely, absolutely committed to making sure that evil is met with judgment. You look at verse 16. Cut sharply to the right, set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed, I also will clap my hands. I will satisfy my fury. I, Yahweh, have spoken. So God is committed to making sure evil is met with judgment. Again, we all want that. We just don't want it to be our evil. Now there are three kinds of unbelief that I think tend to clash with with pronouncements like this. Three kinds of unbelief. One I'm going to call confident unbelief, which is like there is no God. I have no connection to this God. Um, I have no faith in the words that He's spoken and so on. I would call that confident unbelief. Next, I would call measured or respectable unbelief, which is there is a God and He has spoken in His Word, but I will determine what aspects of that Word matter. And if there are parts that I don't like, I get to throw those out, okay? Because they're not respectable, they're uh, culturally regressive, they're um, not modern sounding enough for me, whatever have you. I I would call that measured unbelief. And then passive unbelief, which is, there is a God, I just live as though none of it matters. Okay? Um, or it's just sort of, my, my evil just really isn't that bad to bother anyone. It's a kind of spiritual laziness because it refuses to do any honest self-examination. It refuses to take my, my actions, words, thoughts, and line them up against what Scripture says and see how that pans out. Okay? So confident, measured, and, and passive unbelief. Three kinds. What all three have in common is that they believe that their particular brand of unbelief is relatively harmless. Relatively harmless. Otherwise they would, otherwise they would change. Right? Our ever-present temptation, no matter who you are, is to downplay the evil that happens in your own heart. It's always, always the ever-present temptation of your flesh to, to look at your sin, and if you'll pardon the movie reference, to, to look at it in all its grotesqueness and just say it's merely a flesh wound, right? It's, it's just a tiny little, it's, it's not a big deal, right? You are always tempted to do that with your sin. And God's solution to that, to that problem in our flesh is to command His people to uh, at least one of the things he does, commands them to rightly order their emotions. Okay? Think of it this way. Remember back in, in our text, God tells Ezekiel in verse 12, cry out and wail, son of man. I, I want you to take that and think of it this way. Ezekiel, you have the ability to cry out and wail. Use it. This is what it's for. N- not saying this is all it's for, the only thing it can ever be used for, but now's the perfect time for that. He tells Ezekiel to cry aloud about this judgment and to clap his hands. This is the emotional complexity that God dares to grant us in the Psalms and in the prophets as well. People who can 
like Job, both cry aloud about something and say amen. Right? Just like Job. God's given, God's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can, can we do that? Can we be a, a people who know when is the time to cry and at the same time say amen. I can tell you I've seen Christians do it at funerals. And to speak of crying aloud this way might sound odd for a lot of reasons. I think one of them is that we live in a world where crying aloud um, has all kinds of reasons and purposes. But one, one purpose is what I like to call weaponized grief, weaponized sadness, where the saddest, most hurt person with the worst victim story is given total control of a narrative and of morality itself. So God says to Ezekiel, be grieved, cry out and wail. Because of sin. Let them see then also the flashing of this sword. Twice. Three times. Why? Why? Verse, uh, sorry. Verse 15. That their hearts may melt. And many stumble. God tells him, crowd and wail because of sin. Let them see the flashing of the sword so that their hearts will melt. So that they will trip over the thing they refused to see. I'm sure that's happened to you where you've been walking and you've been so fixated on what's in front of you that you didn't notice what was right (laughs) underneath and, and then tripped and fell. That's the idea here. Let them stumble over this thing that's in the way that they are refusing to acknowledge and refusing to see. In other words, Ezekiel, utilize your emotions, cry and wail because that's appropriate, and create this visible sign, the swinging sword, in order to melt their hearts. Let your heart be melted, cry and wail, so that their hearts might melt. Lift up your hands and move them so that their eyes will see and they will stumble and lose the thing that's really killing them, which is their pride. We live in a radically emotionally insecure culture and a radically emotionally indulgent culture where if I have the impulse to express myself and a particular emotion, it must always be right. One of the greatest ways I think the church can model Christian maturity to the world is by striving to be an emotionally healthy people. Emotionally mature people. That is, I mean, to to give you a little sampling of what I mean by that, like, for starters, we are not a people who cry at every mild inconvenience. And we don't cry to use our tears to manipulate. And I I don't just have crying in mind here, I I think, but but also things like anger, right? We are not a people who rage and lose control of ourselves and then later justify it by saying I was just being honest or I was just venting. No, we own it. We just own it. Okay? I failed to practice the fruit of the Spirit, namely self-control. I was in no sense in control of myself. That would be a sin. Just own it. It's a way of speaking that I think is more and more unfamiliar to us. But like Ezekiel, let it be said of us that our hearts behave like the heart of Jesus who weeps over sin. Let it be said of us that our hearts behave 
like that of our God, who says, I also will clap my hands. That is, I will clap my hands at righteousness, saying, yes, amen, so let it be. Or in Psalm 2, we laugh along with our God when the rulers of the world pretend like they can do absolutely anything to stop the sun from conquering the nations. Who rejoice and never get tired of hearing the pardoning words of grace that your sins are forgiven. And so we must take these things seriously because sin always brings judgment. We believe this, and again, we all want it. We just don't want to be the guilty ones. Verse 17 gives us a promise then that God Himself keeps. Again, I also will clap my hands and I will satisfy my fury. I, Yahweh, have spoken. That was a promise that reached its greatest fulfillment on Calvary. Where with the Father's hand clap of approval, the hands of God the Son were torn apart and spread out on a cross. All of God's fury and righteous and appropriate and fitting judgment on your sin was spent and satisfied. Such that we can rejoice that the sinless Son of God took on flesh to save us from our sins through His perfect life, through His obedience, His death on the cross, where He endured the punishment for us. He took the blows of God's justice so that we who live in this new covenant age do not receive the great sword of judgment. The only thing that we receive is the occasionally painful discipline of God. That is the discipline of grace that wakes us up to our unbelief. That that makes us realize the weight of our sin, that gives us eyes to see, as it were, our immaturity and the ways that we still fall so short. And so that's why we keep coming back and gathering together and singing together and encouraging each other and coming to the table. Because we need to be reminded, yes, we need to remember. We need faith to carry on after this God. And even though there may be decisions He makes in the heavens that cause us to weep, we also will affirm and amen all that He does. Our God is in the heavens and He does all He pleases and therefore we will follow after Him in faith and worship. In the name of Jesus, Amen.